Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker, and each week we work our way through sermons preached by the Victorian pastor and preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Born in 1834, he died in 1892. He was a preacher, a Baptist minister of the gospel, primarily in London during his day, and he was and is renowned as the Prince of Preachers. That's not first and foremost because of his great giftedness, although he was a gifted man, but because of the great grace that God worked in him and the great blessings that the Lord bestowed upon him in preaching Christ and him crucified. Now, each week we work our way through a sermon a day. This week it's 773 to 779. If you want to follow along with that, you can do so on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or you can also sign up at mediagratii.org slash podcasts. They're the uh, producers and distributors of this podcast where you can get a weekly newsletter with our featured sermon. Now, the sermons we have available from Spurgeon in the new Park Street pulpit and the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit, both of them named after the buildings in which the sermons were preached, those sermons uh, are themselves a selection of his output during those years of his life and ministry. We're then taking a representative sample of them, and that brings us this week to Sermon 774 from John 15 and verse 2. The title of the sermon is A Sharp Knife for the Vine Branches, and it was preached on the 6th of October 1867, the Lord's Day morning at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. That text then, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. These, says Spurgeon, are the words of Jesus, and they're the words of the Lord Jesus just before his departure from the world. There are words, these are words, moreover, about us. That's how Spurgeon launches into his sermon. It's one of those where he has just a, a brief opening paragraph, not much at all in way by way of introduction, and then launches into a text which he says suggests self-examination, conveys instructions, and invites meditation. And a good example, especially here then for, for preachers who may be inclined to great wandering introductions or to... Uh, rehearsing previous sermons that they've preached so that the first 20 or 30 minutes of whatever they've got to say is taken up with a review of what they've said before. Here Spurgeon throws himself straight into the substance. In the first place, he says, the text suggests self-examination. He hears an echo of the voice of Malachi, who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire and like Fuller's soap. In these two heart-searching sentences, says Spurgeon, the voice of him of whom John said also, his fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor, can be heard. So, Spurgeon wants us to be ready to be thrust into the flame, to be covered with the hot coals of burning truth, and not to be found reprobate, because we cannot bear the trial. His point is that self-examination helps us to know our own state before God. And it's important for us to remember that Spurgeon is not then 
uh, a, a genial Victorian pulpiteer dispensing sentimental religious notions. He wants us not only to hear the word of Christ, not only to believe the gospel of Christ, but to know what that gospel is and the difference that it makes so that we don't fool ourselves into imagining that we have received Christ when we have not actually done so. So then, he says that our text mentions two characters who are in some respects exceedingly alike. Both are described as being a branch in Christ. Now, Spurgeon's way of resolving the, the tension of asking how is it then that there are some who are described in Christ who bear no fruit, is to say that this is an outward appearance, that there is an outward estimation that could be made that any two characters are equally Christians. By that he means that their names are enrolled in the same church register. In the common judgment of men, they're equally considered to be believers. According to their own profession, they are so. In many other respects, which we need not now catalogue, they were both in Christ as his avowed disciples, as soldiers professedly fighting under his banner, as servants wearing his livery. So he's making the point here that this might be a little like the virgins who are wait waiting for the wedding party to arrive. And, and they're all gathered in the same place. They're all testifying that they're waiting, but some have oil in their vessels and some do not. So outward appearance here every branch in me. How often has it happened, says Spurgeon, that two persons of widely different state before the Lord have been baptised at the same hour, in the same water, into the same triune name, have broken bread together with equal apparent fervency and with equal professions of enjoyment of devotion. They've been equally fair in their profession, their moral conduct as in the judgment of all onlookers been much the same. They've avoided everything of ill repute. They have in their measure sought after that which was comely and lovely in the estimation of men. Ah, there will often be found two who publicly pray alike, have an equal gift in prayer, and, what is worse, preach with equal earnestness and zeal to all appearance, who have family prayer maintained with the same consistency, and yet for all this the end of the one shall be to cast away as a branch to be burned, while the end of the other shall be to bring forth fruit unto perfection with everlasting life as the reward. His point is that men can counterfeit cleverly, but when the devil himself helps, that that man becomes master of the art. The difference is known when battle is joined. You can tell a bold man from a coward because when they go into battle, they are both tested and proved. Some peculiar phase of the conflict will bring out the difference. His point then is not that there's no such thing as a genuine Christian, not that every true believer should so suspect themselves as to lose all their assurance, but that it is possible, at least to outward appearances, possible for, for two people to have the same outward testimony, but only one to be genuinely converted. And the text then brings us to the distinction between them. This is his second subheading here with regard to this duty of self-examination. The great and solemn difference. The first branch brought forth no fruit. The second branch bore some fruit. By their fruits you shall know them. Now what's interesting here is that Spurgeon is therefore suggesting that all that outward appearance of religion is not actually of necessity, spiritual fruit. It may prove something of it, 
but it doesn't necessarily reveal that there is real spiritual change in the soul. We have no right to judge of our neighbour's motives, he says, and their thoughts, except so far as they may be clearly discoverable by their actions and deeds. The interior we must leave with God, but the exterior we may judge and must judge. There is a sense in which we are not to judge men, but another in which we would be an arrant fool if we did not constantly exercise our judgment upon men. By their fruits you shall know them is our Lord's own canon of sacred criticism. If you would judge men and judge yourselves, this is the one test, by their fruits. So true faith in Christ always produces fruit, not merely an outward reformation, but an inward reality that bears its evidence in the way that a man lives. So uh, it might feel like he's being a, a little inconsistent here when saying it's, it's not the inward, it's the outward. And you say, well, everything he's described so far is outward, but what he's aiming at then is spiritual fruit. And this is what he's talking about. He asks, Professor, and when Spurgeon uses the language of professor, he's not talking about an academic position, he's talking about the person who professes faith. So he's questioning himself and us. Have you brought forth the fruit of love, of joy, of peace, of long-suffering, of gentleness, of goodness, of faith, of meekness, of temperance? Those are the things of which he speaks. This is what he means. I do not ask you, can you talk of love, but do you feel it? I don't say, is love upon your tongue, but does love rule your heart? Do you love God as a child loves its father? Do you love the Saviour from a sense of gratitude to him who brought you with his blood? Do you feel the love of the gracious comforter who dwells in you, if you be indeed a child of God? What do you know about love to the brothers? Do you love the saints as saints, whether they belong to your church or not? whether they please you or serve your turn or not. Say, do you love God's poor? Do you love God's persecuted and despised ones? Now you see how he's going beyond now the mere performance of religious duty. And he's asking with regard to the motives by which those duties are carried out. Or joy. Does your religion ever give you joy? Is it mere matter of duty, a heavy chain for you to drag about like a convict? Or is your religion a harp for you to dance to the tune of? Do you ever rejoice in Jesus Christ? Do you know what the joy of the Lord means? Does it ever give you joy to think that he is the same even when the fig tree does not blossom and the herd is cut off from the stall? Do you feel a joy in reading the promises of God's word? Have you a joy in secret prayer? These are some of the Again, the, the evidences. Now, you might say, well, that's all inward. Well, not necessarily. It's going to work its way out in the life that you live. Or peace. Oh, blessed fruit, an autumn fruit, mellow and sweet and fit for an angel's truth. Tooth. It is the fruit the blessed feed upon in heaven. Peace with God, of conscience, with one's fellow men. The peace of God which passes all understanding. So again, you've got here this, this inward reality that... Though it is spiritual, is not secret, it's not private. Then there's long-suffering, or we might say patience. Some of us, he says, may be naturally quick-tempered. Grace must overcome angry passions. There again is the inward reality that bears the outward fruit. 
There's patience, which bears God's chastising hand, and there's long-suffering towards man, bearing persecution without apostasy, slander and reproach without revenge. We don't just say, I cannot help my anger. The fruit of the Spirit is long-suffering. You must help it. This is what he says. If there's no change in your temper, there is no change in you at all. You have need to be converted. If the grace of God does not help you in a measure to keep under that temper which will be there, but which you must restrain, you have need to go to God and ask him to make sound work in you, for there is no work of grace there yet. So when you've got somebody whose spirit of anger or bitterness has never changed, there is no evidence that they are a child of God. Next in order is gentleness. Spurgeon says that's kindness. A Christian's a man of kindness. He recognises his kinedness, his uh, fellow identity with his fellow men. He wishes to treat them as family. He has compassion for those who are suffering. He endeavours to make his manners kind and courteous. He knows that there's a natural offence in the cross to carnal men and wishes not to add any offence of his own. He desires in his own life not to be morose, suspicious, harsh, proud, domineering, but rather seeks to imitate his master, who said of himself, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. The believer in Christ should be gentle toward all men with whom he comes into contact. Then another fruit of the Spirit, goodness, beneficence, benevolence, generosity, not just a kind manner, but a bountiful heart. Like our Lord and Master, Christians should be easily entreated, ready to communicate, making it our delight and business to distribute like a cloud full of rain, emptying itself upon the earth, like the bright and sparkling sun, scattering his beams abroad, not hiding or hoarding light. Then comes faith, says Spurgeon, which includes but is not exhausted by the grace of faith, which is rather a root than a fruit. He says uh, it's faithfulness toward God primarily, faithfulness toward conscious conscience. That's what he has in mind. He talks about those good and gracious ministers in the establishment who are the prop and pillar of it and by whose influence is maintained a system that enables traitors to pollute this land with popery. And he says if they had a little more tenderness of conscience and would come out of their unhallowed alliance. So he's saying uh, not just now of, say, Anglican ministers who are making alliance with those who are walking and thinking contrary to all true godliness, but but anybody who's yoking themselves in an environment with people who are going contrary to God. My brothers, may your consciences be faithful, and may you be faithful to your consciences. Men that trifle with doctrine little know what sins they commit. Then there's meekness. The Christian is to be as harmless as a dove, in his master's battles, bold as a lion, but for himself and his own cause, tender, gentle, shunning debate, loving quietness, ready to take a rebuke rather than to administer one, feeling himself to be weak and frail. Then there's temperance. Uh, He says that includes uh, all our real appetites for the flesh. The man who indulges the appetites of the flesh, he says, and cannot control himself as to eating and drinking, need not pretend to be a Christian. He has first to prove that he is equal to a beast before he may pretend to be a child of God. He has first to show that he is a man before he may claim to be a Christian. So the glutton, the drunkard, the immoderate man, temperance 
uh, must show itself in, in dress, in spending, in temper, in every act, a moderation to be observed, a narrow road to be followed. Spurgeon saying, if you have no self-control over your appetites, then you are not bearing Christian fruit. So he says, I am persuaded that no truth needs to be pressed more upon my soul and yours than this, that positive fruit is the only test of our being in Christ. Now, Spurgeon often insists that all we need to be in Christ is faith that we don't need fruit in order to be in Christ. And he's right in the sense that we do not earn our standing. He often insists that faith and faith only is, is the, the, the evidence of our being in the Lord Jesus. And there I think he means that we do not need then to, to add anything to faith in order to be confident of our standing in Christ. What he's saying here is that whenever there is faith in Christ, whenever someone is in Christ, there will always be this fruitfulness. And that is the test of our being in the Lord Jesus. The judgment, he says, will not be about those things which you do not do, but about positive things. Now, again, I think uh, sometimes he states one truth so clearly that it actually can become a little bit uh, out of proportion in terms of some of the other things. This is this is something I think that preachers have to be aware of, that sometimes we can become fixated on the particular truth that a text preaches and lose sight of the fact that the scriptures say other things which have to deal with the same issue. So there's that care that we need to take to preach every text to its fullest, but not to push it too far. So what Spurgeon is doing here is that he's now emphasizing what also needs to be emphasized, not only that it is faith alone that grasps Christ, but where there's the root of faith, there will always be the fruit of this holiness, the fruit of the Spirit. And says Spurgeon, the solemn difference then between these two people who have all the outward appearance of being followers of Jesus in terms of the kind of life that they live but not the same fruitfulness in terms of the life that is in them, that that difference leads to a solemn result. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, Christ takes away. The Lord removes the barren branch. Sometimes he allows the professor to apostatize. We always, he says, should regret the fools of professing Christians, but sometimes it is possible that discovered sins may be a blessing, for they take away from the church men who never ought to have been there and who were an injury to it. That's a fearful thought, is it not? That it may be better for someone to be taken out, to be removed. The church is better off without these false professions of faith. Although they may seem to add to the numbers, they may seem to add to the coffers, they may seem to add to the reputation, if they are not true believers, then they are doing harm to the body of Christ. I cannot picture to you, he says, that day of doom, that fate tremendous which shall come upon fruitless branches of the spiritual vine, outside the gate, with a great gulf fixed between them and heaven, where the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, where their worm dies not, and the fire is not quenched. So much then for, for this first point. And again, you notice how Spurgeon's brief introduction here has given him plenty of scope for this first long 
investigation of the text that there's this uh, exceeding likeness with regard to certain outward aspects that there's a great and solemn difference with regard to real spiritual fruit and that that great difference results in a solemn outcome that those who are fruitless will be taken away. That then brings him to his second point that the text conveys instruction. Now he's going to be equally careful here and now he's talking more particularly to God's people. The fruit-bearing branches themselves, he says, are not perfect. They need pruning. There's much of original inbred sin remaining in the best of God's people, so that whenever the sap within them is strong for the production of fruit, there's a tendency for that strength to turn into evil, and instead of good fruit, evil is produced. So, it's not perfection that we're looking for. It is rather lively godliness. The love that we ought to bear toward our neighbours, to use one of the examples of spiritual fruitfulness, how apt is that to run into love of the world and carnal complacency toward its evil ways? Or think of the gentleness which I praised just now, he says. That often turns to a silly compliance with everyone's whim. The meekness which is the fruit of the Spirit, how often that becomes an excuse for holding your tongue when you ought boldly to speak. The fact is, he says, it's very difficult to keep ourselves when we're in a flourishing state from producing wood instead of grapes. So, there is real fruit in God's people, but it's not perfect yet. It has not yet reached its its full measure, and too often it brings forth that which is not pleasing or fails to bring forth that which is pleasing. And so pruning, he says, is the lot, the the portion of all the fruitful saints. The word of God prunes the Christian. The word of God is the instrument that the Lord uses. This truth purges him. The scripture made living and powerful by the Holy Spirit effectually cleanses the believer. Affliction is the handle of the knife, the grindstone that sharpens the word, the dresser who removes our soft garments and lays bare the diseased flesh so that the surgeon's lancet may get at it. Affliction makes us ready to feel the word, but the true pruner is the word in the hand of the great husbandman or vine dresser, I might say the gardener. It is the word coming to us while in affliction that purges us. It is the Holy Ghost laying home divine truth, applying the blood of Jesus, working in all his divine energy in the soul. It is this that prunes us, and affliction is only the handle of the knife. Or what if I say, the ladder which the gardener takes to reach the vine so that he may prune it the better. Now it may be that some of us have been afflicted a great deal and have not been pruned. I know some people have been very poor, he says. I don't see that they are any the better for it. And I know some who've been very sick and never heard that they have been improved. So here's Spurgeon trying to be pastorally sensitive and to to get ahead of some of the questions that people might ask. Uh, Don't we get pruned by affliction? Well, not necessarily. It's the truth that prunes, but affliction may be a means of bringing that truth effectively to bear. And what about the people who aren't afflic- who are afflicted and don't seem to improve? Well, we need to take account that perhaps they need to be brought lower still, uh, but we must be pruned. It must be by the word through affliction. 
Now something else to consider, that the object in this pruning is never condemnatory. God is not purging or pruning his children, visiting upon them a penalty for sin. It is chastisement, but he cannot punish in the judicial sense those for whom Jesus Christ has already been punished. You have no right to say when a man is afflicted that it's because he's done wrong. On the contrary, every branch that bears fruit he purges. You do not say of yourselves or others, well, that man must have been a great offender or he would not have met with such a judgment. Nonsense. Who holier than Job? But who brought lower than he? Because the Lord loves his people, he chastens them, not because of any anger that he has toward them. And learn, beloved, especially you under trial, not to see an angry God in your pains or your losses or your crosses, but to see instead a gardener, a husbandman, a vine dresser, who thinks you a branch whom he estimates at so great a rate, of whom he thinks so highly that he will take the trouble to prune you, which he would not do if he did not have a kind consideration toward you. So, again, Spurgeon's trying to hold some of these things together. He's not saying that there are no temporal punishments in this world, but he is reminding us that God's people have had their sins punished in Christ Jesus. And so whatever may be the afflictions by means of which the word is brought effectively to bear upon us, whatever may be the, the challenges that we find, whatever may be the, the accusations of the word against our sins, it is not condemnatory. It is not a judicial punishment. It is a loving Father who wants us to be more fruitful. And that means a greater quantity of fruit. You may not pray more, but you'll pray more earnestly because there'll be greater quality too. You may not preach more sermons, but you'll preach them more thoroughly with greater unction. You may not have more communion in time, but it will be closer. So Spurgeon says, you will learn things that you didn't learn and things that you know, you will know better. Quantity and quality. Both of those things are going to be significant. Then there's the outcome. The great blessing. What greater can a man have than to produce much fruit for God? Better to serve God much than to become a prince. He that does much for Christ shall shine as the stars forever and ever. He's glorifying God, he's blessing his fellow men, he's bringing joy into his own spirit. And then a relatively brief conclusion. Our text invites meditation. And he's just going to hint because uh, despite that short introduction, he's running out of time. It suggests to every unconverted person this one question. The text seems to indicate that it is not very easy for the righteous to be saved. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the wicked appear? If the branches in Christ that bear no fruit are taken away, what must become of the Sabbath breakers, the despisers of God, the atheists, the drunkards, the unchaste, the dishonest, the blasphemers? I raise the question, he says, solve it. Let it burn into your soul. So, his point there is that the text is addressing all who make profession of being in Christ. And he says then that some who make no such profession, what does it say to you? If even those who have some of those outward religious forms, but no real spiritual fruit are going to be cast off, what of you? Second, 
What a mercy it is to the believer that it's pruning with him and not a cutting off. Dear friends, your prayer should be, Lord, let your word cut deep into me. Do not let the preacher mince matters with me. Deliver him from sewing pillows under my armholes and lulling me to sleep. Lord, I would be faithfully dealt with. I put the proud flesh before you. Cut it out that the wound heal not so as to be worse when healed than it was when a running sore. Yes, he says, you're desponding and doubting while the word is searching you, but you might have been in hell. Don't forget the mercy of these cuts if they keep you out of condemnation. Then it would be well to think, he says, how gently the pruning has been done with the most of us up until now compared with our barrenness. He says the Lord has not cut, he's not pruned, he's not dealt with us as he might have done. That, that God has actually been so very tender with us, so very gracious in dealing with us. When you think of how frail, how foolish, how uh, sinful we can be, how merciful God has been not to, not to cut more deeply, not to, uh, to slice more painfully. And then how earnestly we ought to seek for more fruit. If this is what God desires, we should long for it and seek after it. And then finally, how concerned should every one of us be to be efficaciously and truly one with Christ? I ought to have said that the whole gist of the text lies in that, in me, in me, in me. You see, if a man is not in Christ at all, then of course there's no hope of any sort. And then when he is in Christ, there comes the question, is he in Christ by living faith, by real trust? Does he have the faith of God's elect? Has he been born again from above? Is he a spiritual grace-taught soul? Let this be the question which shall rest upon your minds. Here he is coming back to that great underlying concern he has. Are you in Christ Jesus? I want my text to be sweet to you, he says. Sweet even though it may seem at first bitter to have a sweet end. Faithful are the wounds of such a friend as Jesus. If he has wounded any of you, it's not to drive you from him, but to make you cling the closer to him. And so he comes back to this great appeal. Oh, sinners and saints, wherever you may stand, come to Christ again. Whether you are his experimentally or strangers to him, come to him now, for still the gospel bell rings out sweetly. So this is a this is an interesting sermon by Spurgeon. I, I almost wonder if he's bitten off more than he can chew. He's trying to cover a lot of ground. I think the main thrust of his text is very clear. But along the way, he's trying to make sure he brings in this biblical balance, this scriptural awareness. He wants to drive home the text so that it comes with all its force to every soul, but he's trying on the one hand to ensure that we don't fool ourselves, nor on the other hand that we despair of salvation because we see sin remaining within us. He's pulled in a number of different directions. It's there's a lot here that is so important for us. It's not easy for us. He's showing something of his preacherly versatility. This is uh, not just a come to Christ sermon, although that is where he ends. His aim is that we should be true disciples of Jesus Christ, showing ourselves and knowing ourselves to be such disciples and growing in grace. So it shows Spurgeon as a faithful pastor and as a close preacher. 
not just uh, laying things out on the surface, but calling us to consider in our own souls whether or not, as God's people, we are truly bringing forth fruit and how the Lord is pleased to prune us in order that we may bear yet more fruit for the praise and glory of his name. So it may be that we need to just hear that main thrust of the sermon. It may be that we ask, how can I consider my own soul in the light of these things? It may be that we need to ask, how do we minister to others in the light of these things, if we have counsels to give or or our own sermons to preach? But most of all, it teaches us to look carefully then at our own souls and to submit humbly to the dealings of the heavenly vine dresser with us that we may bring glory to him.